Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor L.A. Paul. Her new book is titled Transformative Experience. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. L.A. Paul is Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Professorial Fellow at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. We typically make decisions based on a projection of their likely outcome with respect to the things that we value. We seek to maximize or enhance the things we think are good and minimize what we think is bad. But sometimes we are faced with a decision where we must choose whether to undergo an experience that will likely transform us in some fundamental ways, perhaps even change our sense of what's valuable or important. Indeed, sometimes we must choose whether to, in effect, become a different kind of person. How should decisions like that be made? In Transformative Experience, L.A. Paul examines a range of cases where agents must choose whether or not to be transformed in fundamental ways that they, the agents, cannot grasp in advance of the transformation. As it turns out, choices of this transformative kind are far more common than we might think. Transformative experience is a fascinating, sharply focused exploration of a common phenomenon that is surprisingly under-theorized. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Laurie Paul. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for, invi- for inviting me. Sure. Uh, and thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to the podcast. My guest today is L.A. Paul, and we'll be talking about her new book, Transformative Experience, which is recently published by Oxford University Press. Now, in this book, Laurie explores choice making under the peculiar, but as it turns out, not uncommon circumstance where the agent must choose whether or not to be transformed in some significant way. In these cases, it looks as if our ordinary and intuitive models of rational choice and rationality more generally seem to run out. Um, So how should we choose in these cases? This book is tightly focused. It's uh, philosophically deep, uh, and there's a whole lot to talk about. Um, But before we get into those details, uh, Lori, why don't you begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so um, I entered philosophy really when I entered uh, graduate school. I went to Princeton um, for my uh, PhD in philosophy and studied with David Lewis. But this 
I want to say a little bit about how I got to this project because a lot of my earlier work has been in metaphysics um, with a focus on figuring out the nature of causation and properties and time. And this book is really in some ways quite different. Um, And it's not that it's different from how I normally think about things because I've been thinking about these issues for about 20 years, really ever since I thought I would go to graduate school. Um, But it's different in the way that it treats the topics and the way it approaches questions. I always enjoyed formal and technical work, but I was also always extremely interested in experience, in ways of approaching phenomenology, and in aesthetics. Um, And before I went to grad school, in fact, I went to India, studied meditation and Buddhist philosophy, um, and was thinking maybe I wanted to study non-Western philosophy generally, although that is definitely not the direction that I took. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> but I always felt like a philosophical approach to understanding the way that each of us as individuals sort of, you know, thinks about reality and how we kind of confront reality um, uh, in order to construct a kind of meaningful sort of sense of who we are and how, what we're doing basically in the world um, is really important. And I've tried I want to do that as a metaphysician, basically. Um, and that's always been my focus. OK, and then. After tackling these questions from a sort of more traditional causal and kind of temporal perspective, well, I had a baby and then I realized, wow, there was a sort of real life experience that sort of pulled together all of or at least many of the different puzzling things that I'd been thinking about in philosophy in a kind of distinctive way that really brought, could bring out um, the kinds of questions I, I feel like philosophically it's it's. I, I, I've been wanting to ask for a long time. So the project, basically, which is uh, developed in the book, is the result of the way that I want to try to bring together insights from the way that we think about consciousness and the role of experience and imagination in conjunction with powerful mathematical tools from decision theory um, that we can use in order to plan our lives and, in particular, to think about our future selves. And I try to draw together natural ways of thinking about um, imagination and ourselves um, and authenticity um, together with sort of formal tools from analytic philosophy to just to explore how maybe we want to actually live our lives as agents sort of attempting to realize ourselves and our goals over the course of a lifetime. So that's really the project. Well, that's wonderful. Um, just one quick sort of before we get into the, the details of the book, um, I wanted to ask just sort of a broadly now sort of methodological question. Um, so I take it that uh, many of our listeners will will know some of the earlier work that you mentioned at the beginning when you were uh, telling us about your philosophical background, uh, the book on causation, for example, some of the stuff on metaphysics and, and time. Um, this does seem like a departure in that it, it has a... Um, uh, it's, it's not only is, is the book um, interested in a certain kind of decision theoretic question, but there's a sort of moral concern, <laughs> I think, that drives the book. Um, is there any connection that you see between the concerns that are taken up uh, in the transformative experience book and some of the philosophical questions that you've explored previously that have an empirical dimension? Yes. So um, I think there are a lot of um potential empirical connections, as well as um, I think that the work um, that I've been doing has been influenced in some ways by empirical work. And one of the exciting things for me now is that um, I have a grant from the Templeton Foundation um, that's allowing me to pursue a number of collaborative projects with 
um, psychologists and cognitive scientists, as well as sociologists. And um, in particular, I'm doing some work with Fiery Cushman, who's a psychologist at, at Harvard, um, and he's very interested in moral transformation. So he's been exploring basically um, ways that people respond to morally transformative experiences. And we're collaborating on the ways in which um, exploring the sort of psychological dimension of these things can actually come back and um, hopefully have interesting new implications for philosophy. And so not in a way where I just kind of go and ask the psychologists what they think, and then they tell me what to think, and I bring it back. That's kind of hmm. disciplinary imperialism in a way that I'm not really, that's not really my approach. Um, the thought is rather that we're really building a project together, and I'm finding that um, extremely exciting. There's um, There are a number of other psychologists. I'm, I'm also working with June Gruber at, at Colorado, uh, Paul Bloom, who's at Yale, and then Josh Tenenbaum and Tomer Ullman at MIT. And Josh and Tomer are cognitive scientists, and the dimension of the project that we're working on together involves collaborating on exploring our intuitive theories of ourselves. So cognitive scientists are really interested in lots of ways in which we think first personally about things. And there's been a lot of work on intuitive theories of mind and intuitive theories of physics. But what I'm really interested in, I think what Josh and Tomer are, are interested in, is thinking about how we might model our future selves and how we think about who we're going to make ourselves into and how we try to act and um, sort of you know, control um, what we do in order to develop ourselves in particular ways. And so I think that's also um, empirically and formally um, a really exciting development. Well, excellent. Let me, I, I want to return to um, uh, some of what you just said, especially about morally transformative experiences. Um, but first, why don't we, uh, if it's okay with you, just sort of try to get the, um, the idea of a transformative experience on the table. Um, and uh, so this will sort of um, lead us into the, just the way the book begins. So um, the book begins with a uh, with a fanciful um, sort of thought experiment and then develops it further by looking at a well-known but nonetheless fanciful thought experiment. I'm thinking particularly of the way the book begins with uh, a thought experiment involving vampires <laughs> and then uh, 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 gets further developed by uh, a, a reconsideration of a familiar thought experiment from Frank Jackson uh, and his color scientist named Mary. Um, can you run us through just sort of the general contours of the idea of a transformative experience or the kind of choice we have to make uh, uh, under those conditions? Sure. Um, let me let me start out. I'll give you a couple of um, the, a couple of quick definitions and then I'll give you the examples to see um, right. how to work with them. So um, I introduced two notions, two notions involving transformative experience um, in my book. I talk about an epistemically transformative experience, which is an experience that teaches you something you couldn't have learned without having that kind of experience. And there the thought is that you, the kind of experience you have teaches you what it's like um, and by extension giving us new abilities to imagine, recognize, and cognitively model possible future mental states for yourself. Then a personally transformative experience is an experience that changes you in some deep and personally fundamental way, perhaps uh, by changing your core personal preferences or by changing the way that you understand your desires and your perspective. And what I'm especially interested in then are experiences and choices concerning those experiences that combine the epistemic and personal dimension. So what I take transformative experiences to be then are experiences that are at once epistemically and personally transformative. And then there's a question um, with how we make decisions um, to um, undergo these kinds of experiences. 
So I'll give you a couple of examples, the ones that you mentioned, the vampire case and the Mary case, um, just to see maybe how this would work. Okay, so now I'll give you the vampire case first. Imagine that you have a one-time only chance to become a vampire. So the idea is with one swift, painless bite, you're permanently transformed into an elegant and fabulous creature of the night. And suppose that all of your friends, um, all the people whose interests, views, and lives are similar to yours have already decided to become vampires. And all of them tell you that they love it. And this is because um, you get all oh, this amazing new range of sense experiences. You look fabulous in your black clothing. Um, you're incredibly strong and fast and powerful. You're immortal. We can also say, just to elide some of the obvious moral worries, that um, vampires today, you know, um, drink blood either from blood banks or they drink blood from humanely farmed animals. So they're not um, going out and murdering people. Right. Um, It's just a chance to become an entirely different kind of person. I take vampires are people, too. Now, when you talk to your friends and relatives, they say things like, I'd never go back, even if I could. Life has meaning. It has a sense of purpose now that it never had when I was human. You know, they say, wow, it's fabulous, but I can't really explain it to you. You are merely human. You have to become a vampire yourself to know what it's like. All right. So that's the example. And. The question that I pose in the book is, well, look, would you do it? Because if you're interested in what your future is going to be like, and I think most of us are interested in what our futures are going to be like, how could you possibly make an informed, rational choice to become a vampire? And the reason why I think this is a problem, because you can't know what it's like to become a vampire until you become one. So given the definitions I gave you earlier, the experience of becoming a vampire is transformative. That is, it's an experience that's both radically new, such that you have to have it to know what it will be like for you, and it's going to change your core personal preferences. So if you can't possibly know what it will be like before you try it, and you can't possibly know what you'd be missing if you didn't, how can you rationally choose to do it? And uh, conversely, how can you rationally choose to avoid it if you want to choose based on what you think your future lived experience as a vampire would be like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and the thought is, and I'll, um, I'll come, I'll go to the black and white Mary case in a minute, is that um, when we're confronted with these kinds of cases, like a fictional case, you can see, I think, what the puzzle is. But then the further thought is that we'll talk about probably in a minute is that this structure actually generalizes to real life cases, especially real life cases when we're making major life decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'll just kind of uh, let me. This is ob- I think anyone who's familiar with um, discussions in philosophy of mind will see a parallel here between the case I just described and my notion of an epistemically transformative experience, and discussions in philosophy of mind um, involving black and white Mary, Frank Jackson's famous case of of Mary who was raised in a black and white room and then leaves the room and sees color for the first time, or um, Tom Nagel's um, ideas about you know what it would be like to be a, a bat or what it would be like for a cockroach to taste an omelet is something else he, another example he, um, he raised. Um, and the thought is, look, there's a natural and intuitive way in which we see how, um, how discovering, how experience teaches us things that we really can't know in other ways, at least um, not if we don't have kind of simulation machines or not if we can't kind of have our brains activated in, in funky ways by um, scientists. And also, um, I'm assuming that, you know, we're talking about ordinary people and not neuroscientists like Mary who know all of the theory there is to know about the brain and color and everything else. So 
let's say we know all the science we know currently, but we don't know um, complete science. Okay, so it's not a debate about physicalism, even though the Nagel and the Jackson cases really are focused on questions about physicalism. Rather, the thought is, look, we can understand that before Mary um, leaves her black and white room, that she isn't able in an important way to grasp um, from a phenomenal perspective what it's like to see color. And if she's thinking about her future life in imaginative terms, namely she's attempting to imaginatively model her different possible futures when she's trying to make a decision about whether or not she wants to leave her room, then how is she supposed to do that along the dimension that we really think is quite important, namely um, along the dimension of what it's really going to be like for her to live one of those possible futures that she's thinking about selecting. So when we say that Mary doesn't know what it's like to see red before she leaves her black and white room and sees a red fire engine. We don't mean that, for example, she doesn't know which of many experiences, phenomenal redness, phenomenal greenness, or phenomenal blueness that she's going to have when she sees the fire engine. What we mean is that she can't imaginatively prefigure what it's like to see red. And in this sense, she can't imaginatively prefigure the nature of her future lived experience as, you know, living outside in a colorful world. Right. So great. Um, and I, I, I take it that the, the Mary case will be will be familiar. Um, so can you say a little bit more, though, about um, sort of what you've been hinting at, which is that um, our standard models and maybe even our intuitive sense of rational decision making uh, sort of uh, will, will fail in these kinds of cases. Then, then I'm going to ask you to, to tell me more about the, the ways in which the, the structure uh, that seems uh, obviously at work in the vampire and the Mary case actually generalizes. I'll ask you about that in a minute. Tell us a little bit about um, how our sort of conception of rational choice making um, isn't going to be of help in the vampire or in the Mary case. Okay, great. So, um there are two, I think, um, really interesting issues for um, basically um, a kind of normative theory of rational decision making. And I say normative in the sense of when we want to try to think in formal epistemological terms of a kind of first personal decision model where we're looking to identify what the gold standard is for um, acting, namely, you know, how should we in principle make our decisions? Um, there are two problems raised, I think, by transformative experience. The first problem involves, and it's, I think, apparent with the black and white Mary case, um, the situation that the agent is in before she's undergone the transformative experience is one where I think it's easiest to say she just lacks a value function. Now, she might have certain kinds of values she could assign. Maybe there are objective moral values involved in leaving one's room or social values or something like that. But what I'm talking about is the value of what it's going to be like for her to live her future life. So, um, you know, the value of her lived experience for her. It's a kind of self-interested decision whether or not she wants to leave um, her black and white room and go out into the colorful world. And the key to understanding the problem, the first problem for um decision making is that when you um, build a model for rational choice or a decision theoretic model, um, you need to be able to assign values to the outcomes. There are lots of decision theoretic models for deciding under conditions of ignorance, but the kinds of standard um, conditions involving ignorance are ignorance of the probabilities um, involved for the outcomes or the credences. And so you can't um, calculate how to maximize your expected value 
um, in a simple way if you don't know what the probabilities are for the different possible outcomes. But the <laughs> worry that I'm raising is different because it's not just probabilities or credences that matter. It's also the values for the outcome. Right. right, um, right. And in these cases, what I'm saying is that Mary um, can't cognitively represent to herself the character of the outcomes in any way that's going to allow her to assign values. Um, because even the models for ignorance where they assume, well, what are we going to do if we don't know the probabilities? There are really you know, important models that people use in those conditions. They all assume that you can assign values. And um, the, the ignorance models function by representing basically the structure of the value space of the outcomes for a decision problem. Right. Um, and in cases where we're ignorant of how likely the outcomes are, they help us to see how to make certain kinds of trade offs. That's how it works. But if we don't have the values, if we don't have, the, if we don't have um, psychologically any way to represent those values, um, you might say I'm inclined to say that it's even um, problematic to say psychologically that that Mary has preferences about um, her, the different outcomes because she can't even represent them um, clearly enough to herself, then you can't even use the models to do what you want. So the problem in the first case with the epistemically transformative experiences involves the problem of being able to kind of construct and use a model that's going to allow you to do what you want to do. And so I say, look, you can't make the choice rationally if you can't even build a model, a decision theoretic model that's going to allow you to do what you need to do. Right, and it, but is the the vampire case then um, more complicated? Yeah. Uh, because it looks as if the vampire case isn't just a case in which um, somebody's deciding to undergo an experience that's going to have this profound impact on what they know or how they can interact with the world. The vampire case looks as if not only is there this sort of um, inability to conceive or to properly understand the gravity of the values, but there's a more fundamental change in the vampire case. Is that right? Absolutely. So the vampire okay. case brings in the second problem um, for decision making. And then um, and um, and the two problems, which I'll tell you about the second one in a second, <laughs> uh, the second problem. Mm -hmm. And then when you combine the first and second problem together, I think that's when you get the kind of one two punch that I'm most interested in. Great. So the the second issue uh, for decision making involves the kind of um, self change that's involved in these personally transformative experiences. So the thought is, look, um, as individuals, we're encapsulated um, at each time when we make a decision um, with respect to our preferences at that time, including our higher order preferences. So um, I might prefer now to be human and prefer to be to per prefer to prefer to be human, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing is that when you undergo uh, the personally transformative experience, your preferences will change and possibly even your higher order preferences will change mm -hmm. so that the person that you'd become um, might have preferences that are entirely different from what your preferences are now. And so the question is, when you have um, an agent that's basically um, personally quite different with different personal preferences at different times, how do you, including higher order preferences, how do you adjudicate between those two temporal slices, which agent matters more. So, um, and this has been discussed in the um, decision theoretic literature, um, but I think it's been discussed in highly stylized cases um, where the thought is, well, if you have these two different sets of preferences um, and there's, and they're also, they sort of, and the, the first assumption is often, well, maybe we can just go higher order and make a decision. But in my cases, they're all, the higher order preferences often change as well. So you don't have any kind of simple decision rule that you can apply, um, 
to adjudicate. So, you know, you're human and you're thinking about being a vampire and you know that um, right now you want to be human, but you also know that if you become a vampire, you'd be really glad that you became a vampire and which individual matters more. And if we just say, well, it's permissible to do everything, then that's not very satisfying because we want a decision rule. We want to know what we're supposed to do. Not that, you know, we can just kind of anything goes when we're making big life changes. We want a rule. Um, Okay. So that's the second issue that comes up with the vampire choice. But what really matters, I think, is when you combine the fact that you're facing an identity change problem, yet because it's an identity change involving becoming a kind of person or, um, well, it's just a a kind of person that you can't um, right now cognitively model or connect from the first person. So you can't understand from the inside how you're going to change and respond to that experience, right? Then you can't step back and try to model the different possible choices, becoming a vampire, not becoming a vampire, and make a decision about which you'd prefer because you simply don't have access to what your futures are going to be like. So not only is it the case that the way that you're going to end up might be inconsistent with what you care about now, but also you can't even know what that person's perspective, your your, your future self's perspective is going to be so that you can compare you know, mentally your perspective now with what your perspective would be then in order to try to make an informed choice. Right. So this is helpful. So the the vampire case, then, let me just sort of make sure I'm, I've got it. The vampire case then is, um, so would it be wrong to say something like, here's this extra uh, problem with the vampire case. Um, uh, I, it's a funny thought to have, you know, what would it be like for me to suddenly not be disgusted by the thought of drinking blood. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you want to say, how is that, how, you know, how is that sort of imaginative sort of thought? What would it be like for me? How is that different from just imagining somebody else who's a vampire? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. So when we're confronted with uh, the choice whether to be a vampire, we're not just confronted with the choice of, um, by, you know, to undergo an experience, which is going to give us information of a new and uh, uncognizable kind, uh, um, uncognizable to us at present kind. It's sort of a more fundamental um, change in the, the kind of creature that we are so that we, be- we become a fundamentally different kind of thing that we can't cognize. That's right. Great. Um, good. Um, so we've been talking about uh, these two fanciful cases, um, uh, the vampire and, and the, the uh, you know, Frank Jackson's case of Mary. Um, but uh, one of the really exciting things in the book is um, the, the reveal <laughs> that is <laughs> these are not these are just fanciful examples of a really common choice structure that we face. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the, the real life examples that have this kind of structure? Yes. So, so my personal favorite case is um, the case of becoming a parent. So I argue in the book, and I've argued in a separate paper as well, that the choice to have your, to have your first child is effectively just like the choice of whether or not to become a vampire. 
Oh. There's even a lot, folks, there's even a lot in the book. Parents are a lot more like vampires than we do. <laughs> yes, yes, my daughter recently Googled me and discovered uh, a YouTube video where I talk about this and I had some explaining to do. And <laughs> um, so, so let me um, kind of back up for a second and tell you uh, and, and build a case a little bit. So, sure. so now here's for anyone who, who, who's, who has a couple of children, the following kind of dilemma might be familiar. Um, and that is, look, you have two children and you decide, no, I, okay, I know what it's like not to be a parent. I've had a couple of kids, but I, I'm, I'm thinking, do I want to have a third child? And you know um, that, you know, you love your two children now and you love your situation now. I'm just, this is a, you know, this is a stylized case, but I think it's, it's close enough to, I think a lot of people have, 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 have been in this situation, but they also know that if they have a third child, they'll love that third child too. And they'll be very glad that they have a third child. But the case I'm imagining is where someone is quite happy to have two children and doesn't want to have a third child, but also knows that if, if they did have a third child, that they'd be very happy to be a, a parent with three children. Mm-hmm. And, um, what's going on here is that there's an identity, there's an attachment relation that you form to a child that you produce that's identity changing in an interesting way. You're the parent of that child and you're connected to that child with its particular characteristics in a special way. And you love that child if you respond in a normal way. And you can think of that kind of dilemma as a version of the personally transformative choice, the case I mentioned where the decision problem is where you, here you are as an agent at before you make a decision, you have your preferences and see you prefer to have two children and you prefer to prefer to have two children. But, you know, if something happens and you have a third child, that you'll prefer to be someone with three children and prefer to prefer to be someone with three children, and et cetera. That kind of case is not far fetched. Many people are in that situation. And the question is, well, look, is there some kind of rational way of deciding whether or not to have a third child? And right. it seems like there isn't a straightforward answer. And that's even when the epistemic questions are sort of set to one side. Okay. So now let's back up. Let's say you have no children. My argument basically is that, look, the, the, the process, first the process of sort of physically as a woman growing inside a child inside you and producing that child, I think is an incredibly distinctive physical process. It's a very human uh, and gritty process. Um, and it involves experiences, I think, that one really can't have uh, in any other sort of ordinary situation. Um, and then I think that's that's one part of um, you know, physically producing a child. But then there's just being a parent of a child. Um, and in the, in the book, I talk about a child that you've produced, although I think that there's a different version of the case for uh, people that adopt children. But in the case I'm thinking about, you physically grow and produce a child inside you, you give birth to the child, and then you parent the child. And um, the ordinary way that people respond to this, um, to being in this situation, is to um, become very personally attached to the child that they produce. So the thought is that standing in this distinctive parent-child attachment relation, it's a distinctive loving um, arrangement, is both epistemically transformative, it's a kind of experience that is very distinctive and um, isn't in the relevant sense like other kinds of experiences we ordinarily have. I don't think it's the same as, you know, having a little sister. I don't think it's the same as having a cat. I think it's distinctively different in important ways. Uh, and it also changes us first personally. It's personally transformative as well. And if that's right, then um, then the choice to become a parent for the first time 
is, like the vampire case, both epistemically and personally transformative. So that rational problem I mentioned with the second kid to third kid situation is embedded in the first situation I mentioned. Namely, you can't, I think, cognitively model forward how you're going to respond to um, being in this basically deep and fundamental um, attachment relation to this child that you produce. Um, and because it's going to change your preferences in all kinds of ways, I think that you have to have the experience to be able to know how significantly it's going to infuse into your life. And um, these personal preferences that you have after you produce the child are really going to be quite different. I think many people reflect quite differently on how they organize their lives, on how they think about their careers, what they want to do with their lives, how they spend their time. All of those things are really dramatically different after you produce a child. So the thought is, look, the same structure that you see in the vampire case is present in the choice to have your first child. And that means that the same problems arise. Namely, how are you supposed to construct a decision theoretic model where you can look at the different possible outcomes, um, assign them values, and, um, and then calculate how you're supposed to maximize your expected value in this situation? How are you supposed to do that? You can't perform this task because you can't construct a model that will allow you to um, get the you know, answer that you need about how to maximize expected value. And therefore, you can't make the choice rationally if you want to make a choice to have your first child based on what you think it's going to be like to have the lived experience of being a parent. And if you can't make the choice rationally, it also seems that you, know, you, you can't decline uh, on rational grounds. So we're condemned to a kind of irrationality. Is that right? Well, um, I absolutely think that's right. You can't decline based on thinking, well, I know what it would be like to be a parent, and that's not something that I want. Right. Because I don't think you can know, just like you can't decline to become a vampire because you know what it's going to be like to be a vampire. and You know, that's something you don't want. Um, what I say is that it's not rational. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's irrational because I think basically right. there's no model. So that's, it's, right. it's just not apt to call it a rational choice. I do have suggestions, which maybe we'll get to. Um, sure. But I'm not sure that any of my suggestions are really. Um, especially satisfying, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the so the decision about whether to uh, to become a parent is um, one of these uh, sort of uh, transformative uh, experience kinds of cases. Um, in the book, you also talk about um, cases that I take it are uh, more analogous to the Mary case um, with. Um, uh, you know, people who were born deaf and deciding whether to uh, undergo surgery and, and uh, that will enable them to hear? That's right. So um, another kind of case that I'm, I mean, I think there are a whole bunch of, I basically think that most of the big life decisions that we face um, end up being both epistemically and personally transformative in the way that I'm thinking. I think, for example, um, end-of-life cases are, are very much like this. So problems come up with advanced directives, for example. Um, but that's right. I talk about um, interesting cases involving um, certain kinds of disabilities. And I talk about cochlear implants. Um, and there's another sort of more general case one might think of. Imagine someone who's congenitally blind, and they're a congenitally blind adult, um, and they have the opportunity to undergo some kind of uh, retinal um, operation that would allow them to become sighted. Um, and I think it's if or or um, if we want to think fancifully, we could think imagine that uh, neuroscientists develop um, a new chip that they could you could get implanted in your brain and would give you you um, a sixth sense capacity, like a new kind of sense capacity, different from the five senses that we already have. But the catch is you would also lose one of your sense capacities 
Maybe you don't know which one you would lose. Maybe you just lose something like your sense of taste. Um, and I think that's a way we can kind of try to understand what the situation would be like for the congenitally blind adult. Because it's not like always just a win-win. It's not like, oh, well, more information is good. That is not how these things work. Right. Because there are always significant trade-offs, first of all. Um, just how the brain works involves uh, would involve significant trade-offs. And second, there are these personal trade-offs. Because if you are an adult... Um, and your dominant sensory modality is not um, is not seeing, but is say hearing or some other sense modality. You've almost certainly built your identity around whatever your dominant dominant sense modality is. That's how people respond to having these kinds of disabilities. Um, the way that you understand and process information, the way your brain has actually has formed, has been determined in part by whatever your dominant sense modality is. And so we're talking about a dramatic um, experiential difference in the way that you would live your life if you. Um, decide to gain a new sense modality. So then it's basically a version of the, 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 fi- the fictional case I just described where, look, you're going to lose something, uh, maybe your sense of taste, even when you gain this really cool um, new sense capacity. But we can all see how just telling me I'm going to get someone being told they're going to get a new sense capacity doesn't give them the kind of information that they want about what it's going to be like to have that sensory capacity because descriptive information just doesn't cut it. We want to be able to grasp it basically phenomenally. Right. So um, you, at one point sort of later in the book, you, um, you, you, you cast the sort of problem that you're, you're, you're putting your finger on in these cases and, you know, noting their, uh, perhaps unexpected, um, uh, um, com- you know, how, how common they are, perhaps unexpectedly, um, that, that we're left with a, with a kind of Sartrean dilemma. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Okay. So um, I definitely think it's only a kind of Sartrean dilemma because right. it's not really Sartre. I mean, it's more that there's a kind of, there's a way of thinking about um, certain kind of life, certain kinds of life defining questions as, existentialist, basically. And that's what I meant in in the book, in that um, we think of ourselves, especially in modern day society, especially um, um, in Western societies, um, as having a sort of open field of possibilities. And we think of ourselves as being able to make choices that are going to have us allow us to form ourselves into future selves that we want to be. And also that will allow us to kind of look back and understand how we got to where we are. And the thought is not only do we want to be able to do that um, when we make big decisions, but we want to be able to do it authentically. Namely, we want to be able to do it by, in a knowledgeable sense, by being able to imaginatively and properly forecast, at least um, with respect to the dominant relevant dimensions of the future experience, what our future selves would be like if we underwent, if we decided to undergo various kinds of experiences, like become a parent or become a lawyer or become a philosopher or travel the world. Um, And the thought is that this is a kind that, well, the thought is basically that the questions that I'm raising cast doubt on our ability to actually do perform that kind of task. We have this picture of building ourselves, of choosing in in an informed and authentic way between possibilities, of constructing a kind of narrative for our lives. And if I'm right, that um, when you really look at what we try to do and how experience teaches us things, then that picture just isn't really, doesn't describe the situation that we're really in. 
And my thought is that we have to confront this fact and we should understand basically that life, instead of life being something where you kind of plan it out and you know imaginatively what you're doing and you guide yourself into different poss- in, in, into the futures that you want and realize yourself in the ways that you've planned, that instead life involves a lot more of surprise and discovery um, in good and bad ways than we thought it did. And if we're successful, what we need to do is decide when we're going to make certain discoveries. And then we learn to live with those. So we make ourselves, we discover, for example, what it's like to become a parent or we discover what it's like to become a philosopher. And then we accommodate ourselves to that. That's, I think, a really important process as we're psychologically um, adapting to the decisions that you make, namely realizing who you've made yourself into and understanding the value of, of who you've made yourself into. Right. So can you expand on that? Because um, one of the um, conclusions, insofar as the book has conclusions, I mean, uh, is um, that that the the way to think about uh, these transformative choices um, is not in terms of the standard, you know, projection of your utility function into, you know, into the future, but instead to place some value on the revelatory um, uh, dimensions of certain kinds of experiences. Uh, can you tell us about the, the the value of revelation? Sure. So this is um, this is part of the connection to metaphysics. So what I'm thinking here is first I'm thinking about look we causally model ourselves into the future. So we model our future selves in an imaginative way, and um, then I draw on work from on color experience, um, and I'm especially interested in John Campbell and Mark Johnson's work on color experience, where we talk about um, the value of having different kinds of experiences for their own sake. Now, the way that I want to use Revelation is actually different from um, Campbell and Johnston, but the basic idea is drawn from them, namely that we can see that there's value, intrinsic value, in having and discovering experience for its own sake. And the thought is that if we, we that's what involved, that's kind of, what we do is we discover or allow the world to reveal itself to us. And in a certain way, then we reveal to ourselves how who we are or who we're making ourselves into in virtue of undergoing the experience. And my thought is that that has a certain kind of value. And if you think that that value is good enough, and that's a big if, then we can use that to make rational decisions about these big life changing situations. So. The way that I put it with respect to, say, having a child is to say, look, you can either think that revelation is good and so you want to make a discovery about what it's like to be a certain kind of person, or you can reject revelation and endorse the status quo and refuse to make a discovery involving revelation. So in the case of choosing to have a child, you can either say, okay, I don't know what it's going to be like to become a parent, but I want to find out. So I'm going to discover what it's like to, to become a parent and all the good and bad that that entails. Or you could think, no, I know what my life is like now and I like it. I don't want to change it. So I'm going to hold off on discovery. I think that's also perfectly rational. So you're not going to discover what it's like to become a parent. I, oh, I, mean, just, I, just, I don't think that's especially satisfactory as a solution to people pondering whether or not they want to have a child because I don't think intuitively people are comfortable with that being the sole basis on which they make their decision. But it might be the only thing we can really do. Right. So, so, um, uh, so I, the suggestion then is to, th- to think of these choices. Uh, let me see if I'm getting this right. The suggestion is to think of these choices, not as, 
um, uh, you know, an opportunity to um, pursue or you know, try to maximize some particular value that we project might be inherent in those experiences for us as the, the, the creature who has a given set of preferences and, and all the rest. Um, but to see these experiences as sort of invitations to strike out into the unknown and to become the kind of person who's willing to do that kind of thing? Um, the thought is that if you have a preference for the value of revelation, mm. then you can choose based on, on, on those preferences. In other words, you can prefer revelation or you can disprefer revelation. And so the way to build the model um, and the relevant outcomes and the value and to assign values to the outcomes can involve revelation namely the value of discovering the values of the lived of the of the lived experience that you'll end up undergoing um or the value of 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 refusing that namely the you know keeping the values that that are familiar to you so the thought is that when you build your model you have to be really careful about which outcomes um you're assigning values to and what you're using to construct um, your assessment of what the expected utility is for some particular act. Right. Um, That's a little bit different, right? So it's like, you, you, yeah. you know, if you prefer to discover revelation, then you prefer to find out what it's like to be this kind of person. Right. Um, yeah, g good. This is a, a, a real great puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, and uh, um, uh, it, it's, uh, you've put your finger on something very important. I, let me just ask a very a quick um, sort of question, maybe um, uh, about some about a meta ethical implication of the of, of the view. Um, uh, does this suggestion um, uh, require us to think that um, certain kinds of experiences have a value that isn't to be measured um, in the, the, the ways that a utilitarian might ask us to, to, to think of the, the value of experiences. That is, are we required to think that some experiences have value? Um, you said earlier, intrinsic value, but do you mean value that's not derived from the quantity of pleasure or pain that's produced? Okay. So, there's a way in which that's right. So, so the way that I'm thinking about value, um, it's not anti-consequentialist, but it's definitely anti-hedonic. I just don't think that um, the way to flesh out the values of lived experiences is just about quantities of pleasure or pain or happiness or sadness. <laughs> One of the things that I'm really interested in is, um, and if you look at some of the empirical work on um, on people who have children, um, involves how people think that. Sometimes discovering certain kinds of experiences have a kind of value that can increase the level of suffering that you're experiencing, yet still has value in some kind of more meaningful sense. I mean, I take it that's often what parents think. They think, yes, that's right. I'm Right now, now that I've had a child, um, I'm financially less stable. I get much less sleep. I feel overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm, ex I'm anxious. I'm exhausted. I have less time for work right? Less time for my, my spouse. All of these things seem like standard negatives. However, they'll also say, but I'm really glad I did it. And it's such a meaningful experience. So how does that comport? Well, one way to make sense of that is to say, well, obviously, um, there are, there's another dimension of value here that we 
need to be able to respect. Now, if we can identify what that is, that um, I think is consistent with the kind of consequence picture. It's just not consistent with the kind of simple picture where it's all about pleasure or pain. Right, right, right. So the book ends then with a with a um, uh, an appendix um, where you take up uh, in serial fashion uh, some lingering uh, concerns uh, that um, in some places, um, at least as I was reading, it sounded like these were objections that people had raised uh, uh, to some of these ideas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the 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 the, the sort of uh, lingering uh, uh, issues uh, that you think are, are are most important to follow up on? Sure. Sorry. So the afterword does two things. It takes up a number of technical issues that I thought were interesting and worth exploring, but would have um, sort of diverted attention in the main part of the book because the main part, as, as you sort of alluded to, the the book is really. Um, an essay that raises questions more than propose than and doesn't you know doesn't really propose answers. Although I do um, at the end develop a model based on revelation that we might we might want to employ to make choices rationally. Um, and in the afterward, I talk about, um, for example, I talk about the possibility that well maybe we can model some of these um, worries using, say, imprecise credences, which imprecise credences are kind of hot topic for formal epistemologists. And, um, and, and, and I respond by saying, well, I don't think imprecise credences are the, really the issue here. But there is a related, really interesting um, in, uh, discussion that I've been having in particular with Richard Pettigrew and um, some other people, including John Collins and, and, and Rachel Briggs, about um, what, what, how we might be able to model rationally some of these transformative experiences. And the real question is, I alluded to this in the beginning, is can we push the lack of, the, the fact that we, we don't have a value function in cases where, say, when Mary's leaving her, thinking about leaving her black and white room, can we, even if Mary can't represent the values that are relevant, does it matter in the end if an expert came along and just told Mary, well, this is, you know, these are the different values for the different possible um, outcomes. So I've calculated it all for you. So this is what you should do. You know, how much does it, right. does it really matter if Mary can't um, formulate these things for herself? And I think it does matter. And so um, one issue involves the question of authenticity. And as I mentioned before, I think it's really important to us that as individuals, we don't just do what we're told, right? We want to take the testimony of the expert, but then we want to reflect on who we are and what, how we think we'll respond to um, the experience in question and be able to think of how we would model ourselves forward. And if we can't do that, then there's a way in which, because we can't see the outcomes, we have to just kind of follow what the expert tells us to do. I don't think that we're in any kind of scientific situation where, in fact, we would have the information that we need, so that there is no expert advice that's good enough as, as it happens. But even if there were expert advice that I think that, that was actually good enough, that could tell me in my situation, right, uh, what the outcomes would be for me if I underwent the decision, if I um, uh, underwent the experience, I think first there'd be a problem with authenticity because I wouldn't be choosing to form my, my future in the informed way that I think we should. And there's a second problem. And the second problem is that this actually came out in a debate I had with Paul Bloom, that when I'm making my choice before I undergo this massive transformative experience, I care about certain things. 
And if the expert tells me, oh, well, once you've undergone the experience, if you do this, if you if you take choice, you know, behind door A, you'll have a utility of of 10. And if you take, you know, door B, you'll have a utility of five. Right. What I don't know is who the person who's gone through that door is in a certain way. Is that person still who I am now? Right. Or is that person, in all, to all effects and purposes, a vampire? <laughs> and so if I don't know that, then I don't know. And the expert doesn't know that either. The expert just has, has just assessed the different people behind the doors and given me the answers. right? And so I haven't solved the problem just by knowing what the results will be, just by knowing the utility values, because I can't perform that intuitive first personal modeling to be sure that as I morph into the person behind the door, that I'm still me in the sense that matters. Right, right, right. Um, so you've been very generous with your time, Laurie. Um, I, I wanted to make sure we had time uh, uh, t- just to follow up on on, on w- w- some of what you were just mentioning. So I, I imagine that this book um, is already generating um, a lot of discussion. Um, and so uh, are you planning to uh, follow up on, on some of this stuff with, uh, you know, further further work? Um, and if so, uh, where's the, where are those discussions taking you? Uh-huh. So, um, so, um, the journal philosophy and phenomenological research is doing a book symposium and oh, great. yeah, it's great. And, and Richard Pettigrew is, um, has, um, written a comment and Elizabeth Barnes and John Campbell have all, um, contrib- are all contributing. Um, so that's a really nice, I think it's going to be a really nice discussion, um, and would be of interest to anybody who's interested in the project. Um, I also um, am working on developing these ideas. Uh, so I was emphasizing, as we talked about, um, imaginative connections to our future selves. Um, I've got all these em- empirical projects um, that I'm collaborating um, with psychologists and cognitive scientists on. And so there's another book in the works, basically. And the second book is um, going to be all about how these issues, I think, connect really rather deeply to our notions of causal and temporal experience and how we think of ourselves in anticipatory ways and how we can make sense of who we are, but from a very kind of contemporary analytic perspective that's also empirically informed. Well, wonderful. I'll I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye out for the um, uh, well for both of those things that you mentioned, uh, the, the PPR um Issues sounds like just the people involved sound, I mean, are, are great. So it sounds like that'll be wonderful. Um, oh, and, oh, there's one more and thing. The book. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Oh, and there's also, I, sorry, I, there's also a Res Philosophica issue, a special issue of the journal Res Philosophica that's devoted to this topic as well. Um, that's where the paper, what you can't expect when you're expecting, is coming out. Um, <laughs> Which should win an award for just the title. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, there are a number of um, contributors there, and, um, and um, they'll, they have lots of different things to say. Um, there's a lot of interesting people contributing to um, that as well. And so if people are interested in, 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 in the topic, that would be another place to look. Well, that sounds wonderful. Um, Laurie, you've been very generous. Um, Thank you so much uh, for appearing on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your new book, Transformative Experience. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to my interview with Professor L.A. Paul of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We were talking about her new book, Transformative Experience, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.